can I just say I really love this church building? Like, uh, Brian was talking to me about, like, some talk of renovation and stuff, but, like, I really like the way it is, personally. I just, it's charming. And I'm not making, I, I'm honestly, like, I love old church buildings. Uh, when I started preaching, I was doing some filling work for a small church down in Meridian, Mississippi, that actually uh, a great uncle, excuse me, not a great uncle, a great grandpa of mine preached at at one point, uh, Walter Henderson. Uh, and I just loved their building. They had this nice little, uh, just the, 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 the uh, auditorium had this sort of stucco, like it was very unique, but they had the, the classrooms underneath. But I, I just love old church buildings. It's a really interesting topic. I was telling Bryant last night, I would watch a reality show about that, like people just going throughout the country looking at different church buildings. This fellow designed this or that or whatever, you know. It probably would be about some denomination that I wouldn't care about, but um, anyway. Joshua 22. I want us to look there. That has absolutely nothing to do with the lesson. I'm sorry. I, I hate doing that, but I just I wanted to express that. And I appreciate that. Um, and, and I'm thankful for our ongoing uh, uh, consideration and our study together. This is another lesson like last night's lesson that I really love to preach because this is a story that both sides have a misunderstanding on something. And yet they both come and talk about it, and it works out. And even more than that, it works out to the Lord's glory. And, and that's what I love about this. If we remember, of course, this is after uh, God allows his children to inherit the promised land. Here is the literal greatest generation we find in Scripture, at least in the case of the, the uh, Hebrew nation, and one of the things that we note and remember in all this is just the simple story of how one side doesn't understand what another side has done. And when that explanation is, is, is said, there's just a lot of good things to think of here. This is a longer reading. Um, I would like to go into it, but maybe it would be best for us just to kind of go verse by verse and just think about it in a general way. Uh, and maybe maybe you already know the story, but... Of course, the land has been divided out at this point. And what we note in verse 10 is that the uh, children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh built an altar by the Jordan. And this is, uh, I know we could go into the details of this, and I probably should have had this on the PowerPoint, but uh, it's a matter of understanding that they're sort of on the other side of things, uh, location-wise. And... uh, they build this altar, and we as the reader, we don't know yet why they built this altar. Verse 12 says, When the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Now, I want to pause and appreciate this, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in just a minute. But why, did they, why are they willing to go to war over this? Why are they uh, ready to fight in this way? Uh, it's fascinating when we think about this. and I, I, I want to kind of use this story as sort of a backdrop to talk about when we make undue assumptions of each other. This is something that happens. This is something that we see in daily life. Someone does something that we don't understand. We make a particular assumption, and maybe we're not willing to clear up that assumption, and we're ready to do, do something. The real situation here is that the majority of the tribes are ready to fight. It's the majority against this relatively small group 
of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. And uh, we note in verse 13, the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead, and with him ten rulers, one ruler each from the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. They came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, to half the tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you have committed against the Lord God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us, from which we are not cleansed till this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us, by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on the congregation of Israel? And, man, and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. I want us to note that their attitude is not necessarily a bad attitude if it's warranted. Um, Deuteronomy 12, we might turn there and look at how serious Moses was about these things. Deuteronomy 12. There's a way we could read this passage to say, well, they shouldn't have jumped the gun. They should have just held, held off and asked them about these things. Well, Moses says in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 1, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Now note, this is the same people that heard this as went into the land. You shall utterly destroy, verse 2, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods, and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses, out of all your tribes, to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet... You have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, 
you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. He goes on from there to not burn, uh, excuse me, I'll just move on in verse 13. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses, in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. By every aspect of what these other tribes see, this seems to be a violation of these commands. The children of Israel know and realize that in order that to be faithful, they now have to hold Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh accountable. It's important to note that God expects us to trust each other, but he also doesn't expect us to be naive. In Matthew 10 and verse 16, Jesus talking to his apostles he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This is really core in our accountability uh, to each other as a group, as a local group, is to trust each other and know and hope that, that we're going to do the best that we can with what we have. And we're going to move on from there. But in the meantime, we also need to be wise in what we see. To be able to apply and put together, okay, I, but I see this. Here's this problem here. And I want to say, though, even though this attitude is, is at least in some way warranted in their minds, we need to remember that this attitude that the rest of Israel has is based only on assumption. The word assumption uh, defined, I like to look at older definitions sometimes because you get some interesting uh, ideas there. But in Webster's 1828 dictionary, it says the act of taking for granted or supposing a thing without proof. Supposition. Assumptions, I think we could also define as beliefs taken without sufficient evidence. Acceptance of religious ideas based on a personal sense of right and wrong that seem to us to be right. The stated assumption we have here, which, by the way, is an unfounded charge, is a charge of rebellion. Because what do the other tribes explain? And this really leads us to the resolution here. The resolution of peace glorifies God. Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh immediately lean upon the testimony of the Lord God of gods. Verse 22. Note, they repeat this in verse 22, back in Joshua 22. The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knows. And let Israel itself know. If it is in rebellion or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. Now, I, I love that attitude on their end too, right? Think about that. If you're right, then I, I don't want to be saved in this. What a healthy attitude to have as brethren. Now, sometimes when we reach those accusations, what's our tendency, what's our temptation, what's Satan going to want us to do? How dare you criticize me? Who are you? You don't know me. We could throw any kind of possible thoughts there. But you know, we need to be willing to say something to our brethren. If this is true, what you're saying, then, then you know, don't make it so that I escape punishment. I want to note that these, uh, these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they are unconcerned about their immediate reputation, immediate punishment, immediate things that might come out of this. They are concerned, however, that the other side understands why they did what they did 
and are willing to openly explain it all. It's not just that they built it. Why do they build it? They go on to explain this. They say in verse 23, If we built ourselves an altar to turn from the Lord and make these offerings, let the Lord require it. But verse 24, But in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason, saying, In time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? They're afraid of the future. They're afraid that in the future, the other tribes will look at them and say, You're not a part of our nation. You're over here in, in, out in the backwoods. You know, who cares about you? They're scared about that. They're concerned that the following generations won't recognize that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are truly a part of the Lord's inheritance. And they're worried that the descendants of the other tribes will make their tribes stop fearing God. And let me say here, this fear is justified. And I believe in some ways it's just as as, as real and possible as the attitude that the Israelites had toward them, the rest of the Israelites had toward them. If this is what they're doing, building an altar over here, that's very suspect. And, and we better be ready to go to war here. I'm not saying that every aspect of it, I'm not saying that every time we see a brother do something questionable, we put up our dukes and get ready to fight. But I am saying that there's not a whole lot here that we should be able to criticize and pick apart. But I want to think about what if they had been defensive of self? What if Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh said, again, how dare you accuse me? They know that any hostility might make the situation worse. And we as brothers in Christ must learn that lesson as well. That when someone is getting to be heated and hostile in those ways, maybe we need to pull back. Maybe there are ways that we can deal with this that, that uh, work through these things in good ways. The lovely thing about this, too, is that the children of Israel react with love and gratefulness. Because they go on in verse 27, maybe a witness between you and us, this altar. It's an altar of memory. It's not an altar for offerings. And we note in verse 30, when Phineas the priest and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke. It pleased them. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the rulers, returned from the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them. So the thing pleased the children of Israel. And the children of Israel blessed God. They spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land from where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness. For it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. One other thing that I love about this story is that Israel basically says, we perceive from this situation that the Lord is among us. We need to be looking for that among ourselves as well. Our working together needs to be such that our assumptions give way to the truth. That's what's necessary in all of this. 
the children of Israel, of course, reacting with love and gratefulness. Their assumptions have given way to the true perception that they need. They're given the full picture of the intent and motive concerning the altar, and they rejoice in the truth. We might ask, what if they had stuck to their guns? What if they said, you know what, you say that, but we don't trust you, we're still going to go to war. Well, in their response, they recognized they would be guilty before the Lord of the blood they would spill, according to Exodus 20 and verse 13. These are good people who want to serve the Lord faithfully. And they're a great example for us as a local congregation, as Christians working together in the kingdom. We need to realize that assumptions are dangerous. I'm not saying that assumptions are wrong. If I make an assumption about something, that maybe that's something that's healthy. But they may be true or may not be true, and we need to let the truth win at the end of the day. It's easy to see that we can run off half-cocked based on faulty or non-existent evidence. What if we simply believe something somebody told us? Someone approaches us and says, Hey, I heard this about one of the elders, that he did this years ago. Well, okay, I'm telling you right now, if anybody ever approaches you like that, I would say distance yourself, uh, at least from the standpoint of recognizing that here's an accusation being put forward about somebody. And, of course, we talk about rumor, we talk about gossip, how those things are, are deadly sins uh, in, in very, very many ways. Sometimes people believe things that are actually based on evidence, but they may not have personally verified the evidence. Maybe it's true, but this guy hasn't really researched into it. What may be assumed by one person may not be an assumption on the part of others, who may have actually determined it to be true based on proper evidence. We need to realize that God's approval is based on truth. Jesus said in John 8:32, "You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." Assumptions don't make us free. John 17:17, 17, 17, "Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth." Assumptions do not sanctify us. 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Assumptions do not purify our souls. It's up to us to determine precisely what God is asking for. If we trust someone else to study for us, we need to be very careful about that. And, and we need to ask ourselves, are we truly standing upon that truth? Assumptions may drive us to do things that we regret. Concerning negativity, in 1 Kings 22 and verse 8, we note that Ahab assumed that Micaiah hated him, and so he hated Micaiah. The, the truth about this is, I think Micaiah probably loved Ahab more than most people in his life. I can say with spe in specific ways, Micaiah probably loved Ahab more than Jezebel loved him. Because when you love someone, you do what's best for them. Peter assumed in Matthew 16 that the end that Jesus prophesied about himself would not come to be. All this talk about you dying, and no, it's not going to happen to you. What was Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. He was his adversary in that moment. Concerning life, Joab 
in 1 Kings 2 and verse 5, he assumed there was no other conclusion but to slay Abner and Amasa. And yet in doing these things, he, he really wrote his own death sentence for later on. We know, based upon Matthew 27 and Acts 1, that Judas was remorseful. Judas, in betraying Jesus, he assumed that there was no other end but his death. That assumption was unfounded. I make the point that, you know, Judas's sin of betraying Jesus and Peter's sin of denying Jesus are very, very similar. I'm not saying they're the same thing, but Peter repented. Peter moved forward. Judas saw no hope in these things. What a sad situation there. Concerning safety, in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18, Peter assumed, as I said, that he needed to deny Jesus in order to be safe. That assumption cost him dearly in his own way. Concerning being right, in Job 42, 7-9, Job's friends assumed that Job had committed some great sin and directly accused him of unproven allegations. Let me pause and say this too. Do we, have, do we want to face judgment having brought assumed charges upon someone else? Do we want to face God in the day of judgment knowing that perhaps we worked to cancel somebody over something they did years ago when really maybe there's some, everything they've done since then has been good? And I'm not getting political with this. I'm just simply saying that we as brethren, we don't need to get consumed by this atmosphere of, I guess you would really call it witch hunting. It's very, very dangerous when we think about it that way. It's a very ungodly attitude. Naaman thought that there would be another way, 2 Kings 5, that he could be healed of this leprosy. Paul thought he was right in Acts 26 and verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I tell you, have you ever heard of an assumption that was more proven wrong? Why do you kick against the pricks, Saul? Concerning justice, in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 6, this punishment which is inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. We, we kind of come to the conclusion this is the same guy that we find in 1 Corinthians 5. And I think that's a safe assumption. It seems that there were people at Corinth who were assuming that the punishment had to be ongoing. That this man had done something so horrible that he needed to be continually visited with that punishment. Well, here's Paul saying, no, 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 you let up on him. You don't be too, so harsh on him that he loses hope, that he's swallowed up with too much sorrow. Reaffirm your love to him. Isn't that important to do for fallen Christians that come back? I've been guilty of looking at someone who, who comes forward multiple times. This was years ago. And thinking at the time, well, they'll just do it again because they did it last time. What a horrible attitude. Rejoice that your brother or sister is back into the fold. Appreciate them, accept them, reaffirm your love to them, and lift them up. In 3 John 9-10, through 10, Diotrephes assumed that he could decide 
based on his own understanding, who belonged in the local church and who didn't belong in the local church. We can take justice into our own hands and skip God in the process, and this is an attitude born in hatred and bitterness. 1 John 3 and verse 15, John writes, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, Proverbs 14, 12 there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. 30 and verse 12, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. Assumptions, again, are so dangerous. I want to think about just some basic examples. You know, maybe this is kind of silly, but I know in, in my life that I've seen an example of this. You know when you buy sparkling grape juice at the store? It kind of looks like wine, you know? And, and this may be kind of silly, but, you know, what if somebody assumes the wrong thing about that? And what if they act on that? What if a brother or sister sees you buying that in the grocery store and says, oh, well, Stephen's buying wine. What in the world does that mean? And maybe there are some assumptions they can jump to. You know what would help that? If they approach the person... Go to Matthew 18 and say, I'm going to go talk to him and just, Stephen, listen, I, I saw you buying something the other day. It looked like a wine bottle. What was that? And I'll pull in my fridge here, sparkling grape juice. All good, you know. We, we can assume that. But, you know, there are more serious things, right? What if someone is in prison on false charges? It happens. And we don't need to rush to assume that, well, they must have arrested him for a good reason. We don't know that. We don't know that. And so we have to be very careful. What if someone goes to their death based on false testimony? What if a spouse assumes the other spouse is unfaithful and divorces without any evidence? We can irrevocably harm the hearts and souls of others by harshness and unrighteous judgment based on an untrue assumption. That's how dangerous this is. We can be naive or deceived and believe something that's false to our ruin. We know that we will be judged on all these things. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. I really want to encourage you as we begin to close our thoughts here. Do not let wrong and right be perverted. Especially among brethren. Each side in this confrontation that we read about today was right in its actions and motive. But this is not always the case. Sometimes we can have the right motive with the wrong action. Or the right action with the wrong motive. Both of these are wrong. Smith says this uh, from Joshua 22. He says, Misunderstanding between brethren arises when one group launches into some activity without seeking approval from the congregational leadership and without explaining intentions. Often, brothers jump to conclusions about motives without first carefully investigating the situation. Brothers and sisters, we need to let truth reign in our lives. God's truth. And when we leap to these assumptions, we're not just harming someone else, we're harming ourselves. God wants us to uh, think about these things in a very good and real way. Uh, this quote from a preacher I talked to once, he said, If you know, accuse. If you don't know, ask. If you suspect, Warn. I think there's some wisdom there. 
1 Corinthians 13, 7, of course, tells us that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you love your brethren, you will assume the best of them. This is not complicated. But we need to consider all the assumptions made by the majority of the religious world out there, don't we? God's grace covers our sins if we're ignorant to them, whereas the, the scriptures show that ignorance is no excuse. That's what the world will assume about this. The world will assume that grace and law, love and obedience are mutually exclusive, whereas God's behavior, his commands, and his wisdom incorporate all. It doesn't matter if we're right, someone says. Just have love. We also have to be vigilant for the opposite assumption, that we must always have the black or white answer to everything. And I'm just going to say right now, we won't always have that. And we will have sometimes that will be difficult. But if we trust in the Lord and keep studying and working together, we'll get to those right answers. All assumptions carry with them a particular bias and motives that lead people to certain conclusions. Let's make sure the answer is that we guard our assumptions with the truth. We're going to kind of make those assumptions. We're going to think those thoughts. It's all in how we deal with that that's the most important part here. Am I trusting in God's truth or am I trusting in what my assumptions are? It's good to be vigilant and militant about our faith, right? God has commanded us to be so. We have to make sure that vigilance is well informed, that militancy comes from the correct motive and action. And in making and receiving accusations, we have to allow God's love to overwhelm and motivate any consideration, accuse with humility and respond with humility. What is our witness between each other? The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they had this altar as their witness between each other. They were, they were all part of God's inheritance. But even more so, we as Christians, we have the seal of the Spirit binding us together. And that's way more important than what they built. So think about it. When we come to difficult times, times where we're, our tensions are frayed, and maybe we're ready to fight each other, maybe we need to remember that God has brought us together for a purpose. And that we can trust in His truth to lead us through these difficult times. To know that we can rejoice when we come together on an issue and we reach an understanding. We say, I didn't get you before, but now I do. What a great thing to rejoice in that, because in that sense, we, we still know God is among us. If you need to respond to the gospel this morning, maybe you find, you feel and understand that maybe you've made some assumption that's not correct. Maybe there's something in your heart that you know you need to change. We encourage you to make that change right now. We want to be here to help you, and we'll, we'll pray with you and pray for you. Please respond to the gospel as we stand and sing.